welcome to episode 7 of the High Power Archery Podcast. Well, it's April 2020 and we are still in the midst of this coronavirus thing going on and hopefully everybody finds themselves at home safe and healthy. Um, you know, right now we're going through one of those phases where we're limited in what we can do with our practice and we can't really get out to the ranges. Um, out here in Staten Island, we still have one range that's open. It's an outdoor range. Um, drove through there the other day just to see how things looked. You know, there are a couple people there. Whether or not they decide to close the parks where our range is, you know, make them off limits is, you know, it's really not up to us. It's up to the to the people who make those decisions. And right now it looks like they may go that route. I mean, even when I was down there at that park, social distancing is something that some people are having a hard time with. So maybe they have to close it for their own good. Who knows? Like I said, it's not my place to do that. I will tell you that as far as my students are concerned, there are no classes going on. I'm not coaching them even though the park's open. Um, and they all understand that. So all the coaching that we're doing these days is mostly remote. Doing it via iPads, getting new and creative ways of doing it. We do it with Zoom. We do it with Skype. I coach kids from around the country the same way. You know, they, you know, when they can't get to their ranges, then they're practicing at home, short distance, and we work on their form. So just because stuff is closed doesn't mean that you're kind of cut off. But today's episode is going to be all about, you know, what do you do when you're limited and you can't get out and really shoot? In our last episode, um, you know, I kind of looked at the, the dangers of what you find in the internet. Like some people have nothing better to do, so they start looking at YouTube. They get all these crazy ideas. They see things from people who have no clue what they're talking about. And don't get me started on a rant about that one again. But um, basically then, you know, if we look to make this time productive. So you're sitting at home. You've nothing to do. Some of us, you know, the lucky ones, we can still continue to work because we can work remotely. And for those of us who have lost our jobs, you know, our heart goes out to you. Hopefully everything will be resolved soon. Um, so if you need something to do, maybe you should look at, okay, we said, you know, in, in that other podcast, I went over how to practice short distance. If you can't even shoot inside, then how to, you know, do some aiming drills with the reduced size targets. You just post them up on a wall, that sort of thing. But the one thing I find is a lot of people neglect their equipment as far as you've got all this time to do, you know, to look at stuff and you know, use your time constructively. And they never actually look at their equipment. So today's podcast is going to be a little technical for some people, but I'm going to go through it in a way, hopefully, that most people will be able to understand. And I'm not trying to create Botex out there, you know. After listening to this podcast, you're not going to be a Botechnician. But hopefully after listening to this, maybe you'll have a little bit more insight into what you should be looking for. Um, when it comes to to your bow, and there's a little, you know, there's going to be a laundry list of things that I'd like people to go through on their equipment, and maybe they can figure out, hey, well, this is not right, that's not right, and it's not like you don't have the time to do it now. You have so much time on your hands if you're confined indoors, you might as well look at it. So, let's begin. Now we're talking compound bows here. Compound bows, they're all built the same. 
They all have limbs, they all have cables, they all have strings, um, they all have rests. So the first thing that I want people to do is, okay, you're going out there, you're practicing, and you're assuming that when something's off, you know, it's you. And as I've said in other podcasts before, 95% of the time when something is just not going right, it usually is your form or something that you're doing, something that you may not be, may not notice. That's why if you have someone, you know, watching you who knows what they're doing, they can cue you off to certain things that you may be doing. If you don't uh, have that luxury, then you can self-film yourself. Everyone has an iPhone these days. You set up your iPhone, tell it to record you, and you can see what's going on. So now we look at the equipment. So let's start from the very beginning. The first thing you're going to look at is, let's look at your cable and strings. Is there any wear on the cables? Anything strange? You're going to look at the servings. Follow, follow your string through the cam. Look, look at the cam. Look at it where it's, where it's wrapping around your cam. Is there anything that's showing white or discolored in there? Is the, is the serving separating there? These are all things you should be looking at. Because they could cue you off to something that's actually going on deeper. The other thing you want to look at is, okay, and this, all you need to do this is a ruler. Look at your rest. Now, this is a topic of controversy with some people because, like I said, you can paper tune, and some people paper tune at five feet, which still boggles my mind, but... You know, arrows, they go through a whole bunch of changes as they leave the boat. All that pressure going through them, um, they twist and turn and then they straighten themselves out. So paper tuning at five feet is kind of useless. And if you paper tune to a bullet hole at five feet, that's all well and good. But once it gets past that five feet, it could be doing all kinds of weird stuff. And you're wondering why stuff is happening downrange. So we generally tell you to paper tune between five and uh, seven yards, generally, I do five, seven, and then 11 to see how it looks. And if we start off at 11 and I got a bullet hole, I'm not worrying about it. Um, to that end, I find that a lot of shops, incorrectly, from my point of view, that is, they will paper tune, and when they're paper tuning, they will start yanking the rest one way or the other until they get that bullet hole. What's wrong with that? Frankly, a lot. So, let's look at it like this. Now, again, we're talking about the rest. We're going to start with the most basic and most important part of that bow, the rest. If you have to crank your rest out one way or the other, whether it's far further out from the riser or closer to the riser, to make that bow shoot straight... There's one of a couple of things going on. One, that arrow is either too weak or too stiff for the poundage that you're shooting. If that's the case, I don't care what you do. Leaving the arrow in its current form, meaning with the same tip weight, the same length, is not going to change that. And you can shim the heck out of the cams, do whatever you want. It's still not going to clean that up. So, what do you do? 
Well, you have to make sure you're shooting a properly spined arrow. Again, I prefer a stiffer arrow compared to a weaker arrow. Why? A stiffer arrow, I can add weight onto the end. I can go from 100 to 125 grain. I can go from 125 to 150. I can change the insert on it. I can add a 50 grain insert, give you a little bit more tip weight. It'll break the spine down of the arrow. Um, stiffer is usually better when it comes to arrows. Why? Well, it's pretty simple. Stiffer is better because the converse of that, which is weaker, as you get weaker and weaker, becomes more and more dangerous. Paradox is when an arrow flexes as it leaves the bow. And I don't care what cam design, what bow manufacturer, doesn't really make a difference. Paradox is always going to be there. You film, film in the slow motion, you will see it. And it's kind of scary to look at. So let's say that you have a 70-pound bow. Most common that you see out there, guys, you know, they buy the 70-pounder. Why am I going to buy a 50? I'm going to buy a 70. It's a macho thing to do. Whatever. But then they're told improperly, oh, shoot a 400 spine arrow out of it. Yeah, that's like a wet noodle coming out of that thing. The arrow is physically too weak for it. It's going to paradox a lot more and bend a lot more. Those, those arcs are going to be so big, left and right, coming out of that bow that you are on the precipice of a break, of a failure. And if it fails, that arrow is going to explode, which results in a dangerous situation. If you go with the standard that I have of having a heavier arrow, a stiffer arrow, and it's too stiff for it, it's not going to explode. It might fly wonky, but it's not going to explode. So I'd rather throw a stiff log through there than a hand grenade through there. That's just the way I kind of envision it going. So I have more to do on the other side. Now, Let's just say that it is too, too weak, but it's overly long. Now, when I say long, I mean you're cut so far past the riser, maybe two, three inches past the riser on the outside front of the bow. Well, then your problem, you could probably cut it down. Again, it takes an arrow saw and a shot to do it for you, but you can cut it down and you can resolve that sometimes by making the arrow shorter. The shorter it is, the stiffer it becomes, the less easy it is to flex, therefore making it stronger. Now that formula won't always work, and a good, a good tech can usually tell what's gonna work within reason and what's not. So that's what that is with the paper tuning. However, looking at the rest again, that's why I started this conversation out. You look at your rest and you say, all right, I trusted the guy who set up my bow did it the right way. And if your person you're going to is halfway reliable, they usually know what they're doing. However, that being said, I don't trust anybody. Hell, I don't trust myself sometimes. So I have to look at it and double check my numbers. And all you need is a ruler. Now, how you do this, there's a couple of different ways. Basically, you have to measure from the inside of the riser to the middle of the arrow when it's sitting in the rest. Sounds simple enough, right? Yeah, until 
I bring up the question, well, where do you measure it from? Now, I've yet to see a bow that was cut at an angle in its riser. Where the rest is, they're all straight, they're all level, they're all flat. So, ideally, some people on YouTube, who I won't mention, would drive me crazy. Oh, I'm starting another ramp, but I'm not going to. They measure right to the center of where the rest is touching the arrow. Okay. Yeah, so let's just say that your bow is supposed to be 13 sixteenths from center. If you measure it cockeye, you might get 13 sixteenths out of there. If that's the center of that bow. And assuming that no one has played with the shims on the cam before. Well, let's just say someone moved the shims around. 13 sixteenths is no longer the center of that bow, if it ever was in the first place. So now we have a little mystery of what is the exact center. So what I tell people is, there's a simple way to do it. It's not rocket science. All you need is either two rulers or one ruler. doesn't make a difference. But what I want you to do is, I want you to measure the arrow in the center to the corner of the front of the riser and to the corner of the back of the riser. So you're taking two measurements, one the front, one the back, both to the center of the arrow. That creates a straight line. And that will tell you if you're actually in the center. If those two measurements are different, you're off one way or the other. Now, you could be off a hair. I've seen people be off a lot. So whenever you're in a mystery of why something's going wrong, why stuff just isn't working, what I say is reset it and go back, go back to the beginning. Put it at the center. So, okay, now we've, we've learned how to get it back to center. So now, all right, we've got our center shot back where it is. And remember, when you adjust your center shot, your sights are going to be off. Yes, people. When you adjust the center shot, your sights are affected. I actually stood there while in the shop once. The guy did not know who I was, but I was there with a friend of mine. And he had bought the bow there, and we went there so he can get it serviced because there was something they did wrong. And after dropping $1,300 on a bow, he goes back over there. He says, well, this thing is loose, and I need this adjusted which I could have done in my shop, but he would said, no, I want to take it back to this guy. I'm like, whatever floats your boat. But I went with him. And I had the guy stand there and look at him and say, yeah, I adjusted your rest for you. Um, don't worry about it. Go ahead. You, you, you'd be dead nuts at 60 and 70 yards. He adjusted it about an eighth of an inch. If this, what should I say, gentleman did not realize the difference of what an eighth of an inch in a center shot does at 20 yards, let alone 60 or 70, he's gotta be out of his mind. Well, he didn't. So I'm gonna tell you, adjust that rest at all, you'll have to recite in. So there, we've looked at the rest. So now we're gonna look at, to, to see if the rest of your bow is in spec. We've got the center shot where it belongs. What now are we gonna look at is the next thing. Well, you should be looking at the bow's default specs. 
let's look at one of my bows that I I hunted with last year. It's called a PSC Evoke 35. It's called the Evoke 35 because it's 35 inches from axle to axle. What that means is that if you take a tape measure and you measure from the very central of the center of the top axle, where it passes through the limbs, down to the bottom one in the very center, the factory default spec is 35 inches from one to the other. Each bow has a default spec listed in, in its settings that comes with the tag when you buy it or that you can look up in the manufacturer's tune charts that tells you what that length should be. If that is too long, the bow will generally be drawing underweight. So you might have a 70 pound bow that only draws to like 62 or 63 if it's too long. If it's too short, the bow will draw way overweight. I actually saw a 70 pound bow drawing at 80 because some wise guy cranked it all the way down on a 34 inch axle to axle bow. It was like 32 and three quarters. Yeah, you cranked it down an inch and a half above that. You got 80 pounds out of a 70 pound bow. Well, gee, if we could all do that, what's wrong with it? Uh, the bow wasn't designed to do it, neither were the limbs. Yes, the limbs can produce 80 pounds worth of strength, but they weren't designed by the engineers to do that. And what can happen? The limbs can break, the bow can explode. So it's just like me trying to tell you, here, you can carry around a five-pound weight. All good. Most people can do that. And then saying, here, carry around an 80-pound weight on your back for the next six to eight, eight hours. You're going to break down. Your bow feels exactly the same way. So check the axle to axle. If you find out that the axle to axle is off, this is not something you can change on your own. You need a bow press to change it. So at this point, what a good idea would be is to take out a list and start uh, writing down like things that you're finding because when you get to your to whoever your tech is, whoever your guy is, or the shop that you go to when they reopen, and hopefully they will all reopen. You can say, hey, this is the things I got. I noticed wrong with my bow. Can you take a look at them? And they'll go through the laundry list and they can fix it. But you've played your own physician and you're starting to, you know, diagnose some of the stuff that looks off. So now we looked at the axle to axle. Another thing that you should be looking at with the bow, and this pertains to drop away rests okay so limb driven rests and i'm going to bring this up because a lot of people overlook it a lot of people don't realize it a lot of people don't get it and when they first came out limb driven rests i gotta tell you they revolutionized a lot of things because all of a sudden that there's nothing connected to your cables anymore. It's connected to the limb, and the limb is actually keeping it down all the time. When you when you draw back, the rest comes up. You fire, it drops out of the way. It's the most reliable system out there. This is true. However, they have to be set properly. And when I say set properly, I mean you need to look at that rest. Actually, because it's limb-driven, it's always held down. Look at it and say to yourself, Okay, is my launcher arm completely level with 
my shelf or the bow because it rests on the shelf. And if it's above the shelf, slightly, that's not good, but it's not as bad as if it's below the shelf. What do I mean by that? Well, picture a lever. If this thing is above the shelf, what's going to happen is when it slams down, okay, it's just barely going to touch it and it's going to bounce a little bit and that's fine. But the opposite side of that is when it's too low. So it should be directly level with it and this is why. If you fire, okay, it's going to slam down violently. But if it's below that shelf, what's going to happen is it's going to go past its travel and bend or break that launcher arm eventually. It causes a lot of stress, eventually it cracks, usually breaks off. If that happens to you when you're in the woods, well, that's, that's a bad thing. Um, so that's, that's where we are with that. And you have to make sure that it's exactly level. So, okay, like I was saying, if it's, if it comes down even, you're fine. Now, if it's too far down, it's going to break it. If you're in the woods, you got to fix it. Kind of hard to fix. If it's an AAE, you can just take off one screw, put another one on there. You're okay. If it's not, you might be in a deeper kind of situation, in which case your, your hunting is done for the day. Um, but you have to look at something else also. And this is why I kind of tell people, it's a good idea to have somebody film you with the rest. I basically have been working with these rests so long, I know what their over smack is or over travel, if you want to call it. And what happens is when a limb bounces, because remember your limbs are, are exploding as they open and they'll over travel, which means they're going to pull it down even further. So sometimes I place it just a hair above or what I'll do is I'll move the cable where I tie it to the limb to a place where it's just, you know, the minimal amount of travel. So you have to look at these different things on there. But if you see that it's way that it's below or not level with, with the shelf, you need to take action right away on that. And that can be as simple as you just moving the limb clamp, you just moving the, adjusting the rest. So it's up a little bit. Again, if you do that, Remember, it's going to affect the tune. It's going to affect your impact point. So you may have to recite in again. And it won't affect it that much, but you might be having to move your, your knock point down a little to compensate for it um, or up a little, depending on which direction you're going with it. So that's your rest. If you have a whisker biscuit, you also have to look at this. Not because you're you have limb slack, but because... If you have a whisker biscuit, make sure that that biscuit is not worn out. Make sure there's not a lot of space in that biscuit. So they make different whisker biscuits for different size arrows. What I tell people is try to find the one that fits the diameter of your arrow. If you're shooting a very small micro diameter arrow and you put it in a standard whisker biscuit, it's going to work okay. There's nothing wrong with it. What happens is as that biscuit wears out, that hole gets bigger and bigger, deeper, and then you're going to wind up with your arrow usually showing up knock high because it just wears out. So I try to tell people, try to get one that's size, you know, 
if not the same size as your arrow, get one that's appropriate size with just a little slightly bigger and always keep an, keep an eye on it to make sure it's not wearing down. When it wears down, toss the biscuit, put another one in there. It's field replaceable and you should be good to go. Um, so now we've looked at your biscuit. We've looked at your, at your rest. We've looked at your axle to axle. What's another thing that can go wrong in the bow that you should be looking at? Remember, you have the bow in front of you now. You have all the time in the world to go through the settings. You check the axle to axle. You checked out your rest. What should I be looking at next? Look at my D loop. Now, this is another topic of controversy for some people. They're like, well, you should use, you know, you should tie knots in there to, to make sure that, uh, you know, you shouldn't be tying any knots. Just tie the loop and be done with it. Yeah. Um, I tie serving knots on there so I can locate my arrow all the time. So when I'm looking at the D loop, I want to see that A, the D loop is in good condition. If you see fraying on the D loop, that usually means I need to look at my release. Well, why am I looking at my release? Because chances are, if there's fraying on the D loop, it didn't come that way. What normally happens is there's a burr or something on your release that is chewing on that D-loop as it releases and it's not releasing cleanly. Now, I will say this. I've had students come to me and they're, they chew out D-loops all the time. And I may have mentioned it on another podcast, but when they're chewing out D-loops like that, they say, well, there must be something wrong with, with the release. You know, we'll just try it, especially if they've been shooting for a few years. I, we, we got to see if we can sand something in there. Like, okay, let me look at it. And I'll feel inside there, and there's nothing wrong with it. And the way I test that is, here's another release. Now, in my shop, I keep a lot of releases. It's kind of crazy how many releases we have here. But I'll usually have the same type of release they got, give it to them, and brand new D-loop, shoot it a couple times. And if you look at it real close with a magnifying glass, you'll see they start to wear it out again with a brand new D-loop. Is it a coincidence that two releases have the same type of thing going on yeah no it's not the release if I felt in there with my finger and you know it's it's tactile response you have to feel in there see if you feel anything rough but if I feel in there there's nothing going on but the same thing happens with a different release that I know for a fact is good that's usually a student's form they when their their rocker angle on their hand has to be adjusted and when they're firing it's not coming off cleanly causing the damage to the release rope but in this you know in this inspection we're looking purely at equipment so the d loop if it's not frayed we're good if it is frayed look at the re- look at the uh, release if the release has a burr in it then sometimes you can take a little little file and i'm not talking about you know a rasp that you use for wood I'm talking about like a little emery board and see if you can just file it out until it's smooth to your finger it's fine. If you don't know how to do it or you're not confident with that, then take it back to the shop you got it from. They should be able to help you with that. Sometimes you bought it secondhand. Um, if you bought it used or from somebody else, you may be able, with certain reputable manufacturers, okay, you may, like Scott or Carter, you may be able to call them up and say, listen, I've got a release that's chewing my ropes. Um, and they'll say, yeah, mail it in. We'll take a look at it. Carter does a great job at, at that. They'll actually overhaul the entire release. That's what I've seen them do. 
and they'll send it back to you. Like, you know, while they were in there fixing this, they overhauled it, sent it back to you. You pay for the postage back and forth. You know, they're probably one of the friendliest companies to deal with that over there. So I highly suggest if you're going to buy a release and invest the money in that, in a quality release, go with a quality company. You know, the, the problem with buying, um, and this is going a little bit of a tangent, but the problem with buying equipment on the internet or buying equipment from Amazon where it's like, you know, Mr. Lowe's uh, release or Fire Dragon release or whatever you want to call it release, there are all these Chinese-made knockoffs. And yeah, you know, they're a copy of a release that costs $250 that I can get for 70 or $60, whatever it is. But there's no warranty behind those things. There's no company standing behind them. They're mass-produced. They're actually, you know, copyright violations manufactured by some dude in China. And they're not going to be there for you. So you might buy two or three of those and have them wear out after a year. In the meantime, yeah, you just spent the same money you could have bought one and had a lifetime warranty on it from a real company like Carter or Scott or Trueball, whatever. So keep that in the back of your head always. All right, going back to the loops. So you looked at your loop. There's nothing wrong with your loop. Take your arrow, put it in the bow, and look at it the way it sits in the loop. How much space do you have in that loop there? Is there enough so you can freely get your release in there? What I, what I tell people is, if I can get my release in there by just putting it in the general area, closing my eyes and clicking it, and it's got enough space to lock in there, I'm okay. But again, if that release is so tight in there that you know you really have to look real hard to try to get in there, the loop is probably too small. Now, loops are for more than just how you lock on your release. So it plays into, you know, how how you're drawing your bow, the fitment of the bow. And we'll get into that a little bit later. But if that loop is too small, put that down on your list. That's one of those things got to be looked at by your by your tech. Maybe they want to make the, the loop a little bigger. If you know how to tie a loop on your own, tie, you know, safely cut it off. There's a safe way to do it. I always do it with a dull knife. If I can actually get it off without cutting it, and there are ways to do that, I get it off without cutting it. If you're not experienced at doing it, the loops are the one thing I tell people don't do. Let a tech, a properly trained tech can do it without damaging your serving and without damaging your bow string. So the loop may have to be changed, may have to be made bigger, okay? The next thing you're going to look at is serving knots. Do you have serving knots above and below your arrow, or at least above, or one at least below? So people tell me, well, what does that matter? I personally tie two. I have a reason for tying two. It's twofold. One is it allows you to replace that loop without having to Redo your whole setup all over again because if you just have a loop tied on there and you have to tie another loop, well, you can mark the string where it is and hopefully you get it on there right. But truth is, most people look away for a second or they forget to mark it and then you 
you're you're out of luck because now you have to retune the bow because where you set that loop on there, if it's slightly off one way or the other, your tune's going to be off. So I use the two the two knocking points for locating where that where that knock should be all the time. So where where you set it up in your tune process, that's where it's going to be. I could take my loop off, put another one on there, take it off, put another one on there. And I'm not affected because my my knock sets are always going to be in the same place. Um, why do I tie two? Two is so that I can make sure that the knock has enough space and it's not getting pinched. So now while you're there, and this is critical with short axle-to-axle -axle bows, but pretty much with any bow, if there's no space in between your top of the loop and bottom of the loop, or if you have knocking points, the two knocking points there, if you don't have enough space to at least move that, ar or the, that, that knock a hair one way or the other, chances are, especially critical on short axle-to-axle -axle bows, that bow has got what they call knock pinch. What's so bad about knock pinch? Well, it affects arrow flight. Extreme knock pinch can result in the arrow dislodging from the knocking point at full draw, which means if it separates and it's not making contact, you could have a dry fire, which we all know where that goes. So by adjusting the knocking point and having those two, two knock sets up there, I can give it enough space. Always make sure that when you're pulling back a full draw, it maintains the space. And again, how, how deep those knock sets got to be varies from axle to axle on the bow. So on an extreme, like 28-inch short axle to axle bow, there's going to be a lot more space there than you think. And, but at full draw, you're going to see it comes in. Just barely doesn't touch it, and you're good to go. But on a draw board, which is what I use here and I show my customers, I draw it back on what they bring me, and they're like, yeah, their arrow... I actually had one guy's arrow pop right out the minute I draw it back. And I, I, I said to him, like, dude, do you ever dry fire this bow before? He's like, no, I never dry fired, but it had a limb crack on me. Like, uh-huh. Chances are that was actually a dry fire that the arrow just happened to get enough of to launch out of. Um, and people don't realize it, but with the right tools, you can actually see it. But you don't need any advanced tools like a draw board or anything like that that I have over here to see what can happen. All you just use some common sense. If there's no space, you have a problem. So mark that down if that has to be changed um, for your setup. The next thing you want to look at is your sight. Now, if you shoot a fixed pin sight, okay, no worries. Generally, it's not a problem. Um, but what you can do is you can take a, a level and you can stick it on the side of your bow and get that get that level to a level right there, you know, up and down. the. I'm talking about like a carpenter's level. You're going to stick it right on the side of your limb pockets, make it level. And while you're holding it level, look at your sight. And if that bubble on the site is not level, then you probably 
need to have that adjusted if it even can be adjusted. If it can't, it can't, then don't worry about it. But know that if it isn't level, it can affect your shots going left to right at angles. So you're shooting down, shot's going to be off one way. Shooting up, shot's going to be off another. And a lot of times people wonder why they're shooting from a tree stand. They miss the target and, you know, completely. And it's because your level is so far off. Um, so that's an, the poor man's way of telling if your bow is level or not. You usually take somebody else to do it for you. You know, like you can have them, you're holding your bow out. You'll have them put the level against your limb pockets. And then they'll tell you when it's level. And you look just, you know, eyeball your, your sight level. And you can tell if it's, that, if it's okay. This is extremely critical with bows. Um, with some of the more expensive sites like spot hogs and axles and that sort of thing, you know, that has a third access adjustment in it. And that, you know, first you can tell, you know, if it's, if it's level or not, but then you can check the third access also, because if you, if you just tilt the bow down and keeping that one carpenter's level at level, Again, that's why it takes somebody else to help you usually. And you look at it and that that level is good, but your bow's level is like all of a sudden, you know, trying to jump out the other side of the level. Then there's a problem at third, you know, of your third axis. And you can fix that by adjusting the third axis, which is what brings swings the scope in or out. And a lot of times I see people whose scope is like wacky. And it's tilted all the way in. I'm like, dude, your third axis is off. I don't even have to put on my my tools to tell what it is. And they have no idea what I'm talking about. So if you see that, make a note of it. It's got to be checked. It's got to be adjusted. Um, a critical thing that you can change on your own is if you look at it, at your scope, and you find that it's not sitting at your, you know, when you're holding the bow upright, and you look at the scope. If the scope is like tilted, you know, either forward or down, up or down, then you're not seeing a complete side picture. If you have multiple pins in there, like there are some two and three pin scopes like that, well, that can make a difference on your sighting because all of a sudden now those pins are out, they're at different angles, and your height adjustment is going to be off. So what I tell people is make sure that that thing is square to the bow. And a lot of shops forget it, don't know why. But it should be squared to your bow. So that you can adjust yourself. It's usually one screw that allows you to loosen it and turn it. Just be careful that you don't slide it left or right because it will affect your impact again. But again, if you have to make a major change to that because it was off by like a quarter inch, then be aware you're going to have to probably recite in your bow. So, so far we've looked at your axle to axle. We've looked at your rest. We've looked at the condition of your string. Um, and again, going back to the string, look at your center serving. Does your center serving look like it's breaking at any one point? Again, note it down. Looked at the rest. Look, looked at your loop. Looked at your axle to axle. Looked at your scope. Um, the other thing you can do is, and I get a lot of people asking me about this, you know, when it comes to their stabilizers. Oh, well. What stabilizers do you use? I'm like, what does it make a difference? Because, and they're like, no, I want to get the same setup as you. I said, look, stabilizers are a very individual thing. And I don't care 
if you see all these guys on TV, you know, all these different bow hunters on there, um, who I put very little stock in to begin with, you know, I want to mimic their setups. Like, yeah, why? Your stabilizer is individual to you. So what works for someone else is not going to be working for me. Again, I bring up the indie race car thing. If I go out and spend a couple million dollars on an indie race car, it is not going to mean that I can compete with these guys at indie. It's different. It's set up for them. This is, I have no idea what I'm doing with it, but same thing kind of applies to stabilizers because you could set up your stabilizers like a world champion, cop mimicking everything from the top to the bottom. It's not going to make you shoot like them. And if anything, if you mimic some of these guys who throw tons of weight in the front and tons of weight in the back, it's probably going to be, make the bow so heavy or so out of balance that you're not going to be used to it. So take your current stabilizer setup that you have. Very simple. Hold the bow up. And then just go ahead and stick it out, out in front of you. And look at it. And if you're loosely holding the bow, I don't mean the Vulcan death trip. If you're just loosely holding the bow and the bow leans back on you, then you need more weight in the front. Now, if you only have one, if the, if the bow leans forward on you, now this is assuming you only have one stabilizer. If it's leaning forward on you, tilting just by holding it loosely, that means you have too much weight in the front. Now, let's just say you only have one weight in the front. Well, you can then look into getting a rear stabilizer, set that up, and compensate by putting more weight, you know, a couple of weights in the back. So you can add weight to the back, and then that'll bring the, until you get the bow into balance. What I suggest is most of these weights that you have that you can add to the back, um, they actually come with a swing that you can swing it left you know, away from the bow or closer to the bow. Put as little weight as you can on there. And then if you find that putting one or two weights back there is not doing enough, try swinging that weight out or down. It'll create more of an effect. And the same amount of weight made adjust that can't. But you play around with it until you get the bow to sit level. And the reason why I say this is important. Well, if the bow is not level in your hand, then you're fighting a force when you're shooting. So you want to start out with as level a playing field as possible. The other thing that you should do is, and this is how I work with all, all the people I coach and especially the kids who are in my JOAD program, I tell them what I want you to do is very simple. I want you to draw your bow back with your eyes closed and an arrow in it in a safe place, obviously, pointing at a, at a target. Draw your bow back with your eyes closed. Come to full draw and anchor. Open your eyes. If when you open up your eyes, that, that level in your sight is not level, then we need to adjust the weights. Left and right, up and down, more weight in the front, more weight in the back, whichever we got to do it. Until when you come to full draw, that bow is perfectly level. So you start at a neutral point. If the bow is coming out of your hand doing something like that, you're fighting a force and it'll just make it harder for you to get a good shot and a repeatable shot. So that's the role that your, your stabilizers and your weights play in all of this. 
That's why I'm saying now is a good time to figure out if that's working for you or not. Stabilizer kits don't have to be overly expensive. If your bow does not afford you the luxury of having a hole on the back where you can screw in a rear stabilizer and mount, all is not lost. You can then look into one company makes one. It's a bee stinger and they make a mount that has front and and rear stabilizer attachments so you can have them all in the same point. I actually prefer mine like that. Some people like one on the top, one on the bottom. I like them exactly like that because I can control the center of balance a little bit better. It's just my preference how I've been shooting for 25 years like that um, since they came out with something like this. So you can, there's options for you to go through. Dead center makes some nice stabilizer sets. Front and rear come together. They're not as expensive as you might think. You can get, and like, again, there's a ton of other manufacturers out there um, that you can get it. Stabilizers are stabilizers. They just weights to help you stabilize the bow. Now, some do reduce a lot of the vibration because they're filled with NAVCOM or some other substance on there that takes some of the shock out of it. Doesn't mean you had to spend a lot of money on stabilizers just so they can reduce the shock. Um, it goes back to like how when you shoot a rifle, if you're shooting a very light rifle with a very heavy load, the recoil is going to be unreal. But if you shoot a very heavy rifle, you know, the weight absorbs most of that recoil so that it makes it less of an impact on you. Same way with stabilizers. If you put a heavier stabilizer where it's physically heavier, I'm not talking about a light carbon tube with just some weights on the end. That's going to help with your balance, but I can't do anything for you with, with, um, with vibration then it's going to do better for you. Sawtooth Outdoors makes one that's a very nice set. It's inexpensive. I think it's like 75 or 80 bucks for front and rear. Um, there's a lot of options out there for you. Look at reviews. Don't buy into the hype or anything like that. Just look for something basic. Strap it on there and see how it works. John Dudley and PSE have recently released an AAE. They released a ridden stabilizers. Very advanced stabilizer. Reduction in vibration like you have no idea. But if it's not in your price range, it doesn't mean that you have to be, you know, left out in the cold. Get something that's affordable. And this is what I always preach. Better to get something affordable for you with this sort of thing, you know. And then later on, when you can afford it, work your way up. Okay? Um, I am not one who believes that you should break the bank to go out and get something. It's all about sacrifice. If I can't physically afford to go out and get something, then it may mean that I need to give up something in order to to get that. It's, you know, it's a balance. So if I want to get that $2,000 bow or something like that, and I really, really want it, and I have to have that, but I can't afford it, I'm not going to take food away from my family so that I can afford a bow. Does that make any sense? No. But... Hey, I've got some, you know, baseball trading cards that I've had in my closet for 30 years that, you know, that collection's worth two, $3,000, whatever it is. Maybe I actually just go sell that. So if you have that luxury, you know, make a sacrifice. Then you can get what you want. Um, but you have to have your priorities straight with that. That's why I tell people, either settle for something that's a little less expensive and gets a job done or 
make a sacrifice, get rid of something, pay for it. If you have the luxury of being able to afford it, great. If you don't, then do what you have to do or, you know, get the next best thing and wait and see how it goes. It may not be the, the color that matches your camo or anything like that, but at least it's going to give you what you want. So that covers the stabilizers, okay? Now, next thing you should be looking at is your arrows. Is the fletching loose or coming off? That all affects arrow flight. Inspect your knocks. Are the knocks tight in there? Uh, are they cracked? If you find one, take it off. I find a cracked knock or a knock that's really sitting there loose that I could pull out with just two fingers, I toss it. Look at the knocks. Look at the knock ends, you know, where, where it goes into the, into, the, into the shaft. Is that shaft cracked at all? If it is, toss it. Toss the arrow. No good. Well, some people are like, well, it's just a little crack. It's a little crack that'll, under the wrong circumstances, will result in an arrow exploding on you. So you don't want that. Um, bend and flex your arrows. A lot of times you don't realize it. I tell, you know, my students are trained, pull your arrows out of the, out of the target, roll them along your leg, flex them, see what's happening. If it's good, nothing to worry about. If it's not good, toss it. So that's important. You know, I understand arrows cost a lot, but you may not want to toss an arrow that you spent a lot of money on. Well, what's more important? You lose some money because an arrow got damaged or you possibly risk, you know, injuring yourself severely. It's not worth the risk. Just toss it. When it comes to knocks, especially plastic knocks these days, what I tell people is always order another extra dozen knocks because knocks are going to break. You're going to hit them with other arrows, that sort of thing. Um, if you're on a 3D course, someone may hit your arrow. So you always have extra knocks. If it has a bushing on it, even better, check to make sure the bushing is not dented or anything like that. Um, but also knocks, I, I can tell you right now, if you've been shooting the same set of arrows for a couple of months or even a couple of weeks, and all of a sudden your accuracy goes down the tubes, a lot of times it's the knocks. Remember, they're just plastic and they're molded and formed, but after getting shot repeatedly, those knocks will open up, resulting in bad performance. I've had this happen in a tournament where, you know, I'm in warm-ups and all of a sudden I've got an arrow to just not grouping together. I know it's not my tune. And I look at the knocks. I toss the knocks out, put another set of knocks on. That's my default actions. What I do, I mean, they're right back. The knocks got too loose. So generally what I do now is I go to a tournament. I strip all my knocks off, put brand new knocks on right before I go, shoot them as long as they're all shooting fine, go to town. So look at your knocks. Look at your arrows. Lastly, now is the time to figure out, hey, is my form correct? Is my draw length correct? On certain bows and certain arrows, uh, and certain, forgive me, certain bows, you can adjust the draw length. PSEs, you can adjust the draw length on practically all of them except for the older models. Um, they're not can specific or anything like that. So that gives you a luxury of being able to play with your draw length. But how do you know if your draw length is incorrect or not? Well, you can have someone take a picture of you at full draw and post that to a forum and get 10,000 different answers. I have a simpler way of doing that, and that just involves safely standing, you know, with your back to a wall. Draw your bow, point in a safe direction at a target, come to full draw, and then just 
scooch back to the wall and see if when you're at full draw, is the back of your arm touching the, the wall? If it's not, and it's canted out, almost like a chicken wing, then your draw is probably too short. Or if the bow fits you properly, but your arm is still out that way, your loop is probably too short. Yes, that's how we adjust the back arm to get it perfectly in line. If the draw length is perfectly right, coming to the corner of the mouth and the nose and lining up perfectly, and the arm is not cocked in the front or anything like that, then it's the loop. And we adjust the loop until it's long enough so that you can get proper alignment with that elbow directly behind your head in a straight line. Um, but in a straight line, you should be able to touch your, your rear, rear arm to the back of the wall at full draw. It should naturally touch there if you're drawing against the wall. So this will tell you if, you know, if your loop's too short or too long. Because the opposite of that is you're stepping a couple of inches away from the wall and you draw back and your elbow's touching the wall. Your shoulders aren't. It's because your draw length is either too long or the loop is too long. Again, if the draw length is coming to the proper space on your face and you're not hyperextending that shoulder in the front and the arm, Chances are your loop is too long. So you just got to shorten up the loop to make it to the point where it's right there. Um, again, these are things you should note down and in a proper setting, your Bowtech can take care of it for you. Um, and the last thing that you should probably look at is, is your poundage that you're shooting too much for you? A lot of times this is a subject of a lot of, um, I don't know, internet controversies, I call it. Oh, I need to shoot an 80-pound bow. I need to shoot a 75-pound bow. Okay, if you've got the strength to do that properly and you can shoot it 150 times and not feel your arm about to fall off, more power to you. And again, and this is where, you know, I don't want to say I poke fun at, but my girls can embarrass a lot of adult men because they're drawing 60 pounds like it's nothing and these guys are struggling to get bound, get back 60 pound bows and it has nothing to do with their physical frame size or arm strength it's technique so if you have that 70 pound bow you may be a big guy but your elbow feels like it wants to fall off you probably don't have the right technique that's where you go to a coach and we can help you fix that up but again if you can't shoot consistently repeatedly repeatedly at that draw weight it's going to be a problem especially on cold days if you're a hunter and you're in a tree let me tell you something trying to draw back a 70 pound bow in the cold from a dead start it's hard if you're not accustomed to technique and if you're not accustomed to shooting properly and that draw weight is perfect for you so i have what i call the foot test what's a foot test that sounds weird well, sit on a backless chair, lift your feet off the ground, and draw your bow. Straight. If you can't draw that bow straight back, it's too heavy for you, or your technique sucks. In which case, we can either fix your technique, but more than likely, we have to lower your boundage to accommodate you until you learn proper technique, and then we can build it up slowly on you. The other thing that I see... Again, the internet sensations, the self-created wannabes that proclaim themselves as experts. Yes, I'm ranting, but bear with me for a moment. 
All these people on the internet, the so-called experts, who show you them drawing by hitching their arm up and pulling down and into their chest once they get past the valley, yeah, you don't draw a bow like that. It's halfway a sky draw. Two, it's going to destroy your shoulder. It's just wrong. If that's the way you've been drawing your bow and you can draw 70 pounds that way, yeah, your form is going to be bad. You're going to hurt yourself and eventually you'll need surgery. So you'll keep the surgeons in business. Learn to shoot properly. Learn to draw properly. Um, And again, you'll notice that you can't execute that kind of draw while seated in a backless chair with your feet up. You'll say it ain't going to happen. So... That foot test, as I call it, has been always my most accurate way of helping people determine if they're overbowed or not. You know, all these things come into play with that. And the other thing, and I know I said, well, this is going to be the last thing. This is the actual last thing. The other thing is, the rage these days is to shoot 90% or higher let off. I mean, if you can get 92, 93%, whatever it is, even 85% is a stretch for let off. So if you don't know what let off is, that's the amount of weight you're actually holding after the bow passes through its valley. So if you have a 70 pound bow with 90% let off, you might be holding seven, eight pounds, whatever it is. Now, that's great because you think you can hold all day it's also extremely bad because and this is where target shooters differ from most hunters hunters want to hold there from the convenience of being able to hold forever target shooters we usually shoot like a 65 to a 75 percent let off and even on my hunting bow i think i'm like at 75 um you draw you hold the bow keeps you honest it's not going to take off on you but at the same time you're having to keep it at full draw which keeps you in perfect form on a bow that's 90 percent it is good and most and some people can't adapt to it but what happens is two things one the string becomes slack at that and i can show you if i put it on a draw board i can twist that string around on certain manufacturers like psc the slack is not as bad but on other manufacturers who are just getting into this new 90 percent let off thing yeah you can do some horrible things to it facial pressure will do weird stuff to it. Also, the more slack that string is, the easier chance of derailing that bow by pulling at a bad angle. But now you're shooting at 90, 90% let off, you got it back, your face is gonna make a difference on there, but the other thing that's gonna happen is it's so light when you're holding it back, like, oh, I can hold this all day. You don't realize when your shoulder itself is starting to creep. Shoulder creeps, arrow moves ever so much forward, you don't notice it, you fire, arrow goes high, you lose the trophy of of a lifetime because it wasn't keeping honest. So on certain bows, you can can adjust that let off. On PSCs, depending on the module you have, you're either from 80 to 80, 85 or 90, just with adjusting one screw. Um, Or we also have modules to go um, 65, 70, 75 on there. On some of the other bows that are coming out, I think you can go from like, I think on the elites, you can go from like 80 to 90. Try shooting at the lowest possible let off you can get. 
So if my bow goes from 80 to 90, set it to 80 if you've been shooting it at 90. And the way you can tell where it is besides measuring it on a scale, but if the, if the let off module, which is usually that little tail that comes out for the draw stop, if the draw stops all the way out, that's the lowest let off. If it's all the way in, that's the highest let off. And I think you'll notice one thing, that if you shake a lot on the target and you increase the let off, you'll shake more. If you decrease it, go to the bottom of it and hold, the bow shakes less for most people. Why is that? Such a thing is becoming too strong for a bow. So the stronger you are, the more force you can exert because you're actually physically stronger and you're going to shake more. But all of a sudden now, if the bow is giving you a little bit more resistance, you don't shake as much and you're steadier. And these are all things that you really, really need to take notice of. So if you have the luxury of adjusting down your bow, by all means, do it. Again, if it's in the manual, if the bow has the ability to do that. If you don't know, take it to your tech when all this is over. Let them look at it. Let them tell you. So I think in this episode, I've given you enough to look at on your equipment, on even your setup, to keep you busy. You know, a lot of time on your hands, look at the equipment, see what it is. Um, see if everything is right. This way, you just have to worry about your form. Don't have to worry about the equipment itself fighting you. Otherwise, you're starting a couple of chips down in the game and you want to start off on a level playing field like everybody else. Um, so that's it for today's episode. Hopefully, uh, you know, I'm, I'm creating these episodes and then releasing them. I'm trying to release on the first Monday of every week from now on. I'm bottling up a couple episodes and then they'll just release automatically. I have like release dates that are set in the system and they'll just let go. So you can check back pretty much every Monday from now on. Uh, if you have any questions, as always, feel free to reach out to us at highpowerarchery.com. Leave us a message. You can email us at highpowerarchery at gmail.com. Our new email address will be coming soon. Um, I'm just in the process of fixing that up. You know, any questions, we'll be happy to answer. Until the next time when we meet, stay safe, shoot straight, and be well. <laughs>